Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and regular listeners to the show will know that each week we focus on a particular theme, and then we bring you a bunch of stories illustrating various aspects of that theme, and the whole thing rolls up into a nice little bundle. But every now and again, we like to get a little bit wild and throw that thematic approach to the wind to bring you an edition of the show we call Wild Cards. This time around, we'll explore the relationship between punk and church, We'll follow the latest twists and turns in D.C.'s heated debate over guns, and we'll hear about the moment, 75 years ago this week, when Washington audiences first experienced a now classic Hollywood film. Well, I guess the gentlemen are in a pretty tall hurry to get me out of here. The way the evidence is piled up against me, I can't say I blame them much. And I'm quite willing to go, sir, when they voted that way. But before that happens, I've got a few things I want to say to this party. But first, we'll head to Southern Avenue Southeast, right on the border between Washington and Prince George's County. That's where you'll find United Medical Center, D.C.'s only hospital east of the Anacostia River. In its heyday, Greater Southeast, as it was then known, was respected for bringing quality care to an underserved part of the city. But in the nearly 50 years since its opening, the hospital's reputation sank. After several bankruptcies and care so haphazard, the hospital lost its ability to receive Medicaid reimbursements. The city helped a private company purchase the hospital in 2007. That partnership failed, and in 2010, the city seized ownership and operations. Over the past four years, D.C. has spent more than $100 million just to keep UMC's doors open. But the plan for next year is a little different. UMC is reporting that they're not going to need a subsidy this year. So some of the management turnaround that they've had, it seems to be working. Wes Rivers is a healthcare analyst at the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. In next year's budget, Huron Consulting, the firm hired to overhaul the hospital, has requested zero dollars in operating subsidies. Most local politicians, from Mayor Gray to the leading mayoral candidates, agree the city should get out of the hospital business as soon as possible. But it seems the only way out is to get the hospital in better shape. And as Emily Berman reports, there's still a long way to go. There's a big sign hanging on the wall at the entrance of United Medical Center's emergency room. It's a picture of a fast-moving train and says, we're on the change train. The nurse's station that's here now is older. It's going away in the next couple of months, and this will be completely redesigned. Dr. Adam Brown is the medical director of the emergency department. Last year, more than 60,000 people visited this emergency room. Hey, Doc. Hey, how's it going? In the next few months, the emergency room will be expanded, and more technology is arriving every day. Things like bedside ultrasound machines and glide scopes to look at patients' airways. The equipment that we have here to care for patients now, this wasn't in the past, but now is where it should be and, and is commiserate with what we see at other hospitals. Wait times used to be five or six hours from the moment you walked in the door until you saw a doctor. That's no longer the case. Two years ago, 13% of patients would come in and leave before their name was called. Now, Brown says, the number's down around 5%. Just then, an ambulance arrives. But it's not like on TV. There's no sirens, no one rushing alongside the gurney. At UMC, just because there's an ambulance doesn't necessarily mean it's a life-or-death emergency. About 25% of our patients that come to our emergency department come by ambulance, which is a really high number. There were 15,000 arrivals last year alone. The patients here, because they have no other way to get to the hospital or they have no one that's taking care of them, to get them to the hospital safely, we'll use an ambulance for transportation. 
And the city, he says, has no program to address it. But it's not just a transportation issue. Many patients use the ER as if it were an urgent care, something UMC is trying to change. Let's say you had a cough for for three or four days, probably a cold. We see that a lot. They don't know where they could go. They have insurance, but they may not have interacted yet with their primary care physician that's listed on their Medicare or Medicaid card. So we're happy to see them. But when they're discharged, we have them see a patient navigator or a patient concierge. They look at what the complaint was. They look at what the diagnosis was. And then they find where should that patient go? Should they go to a primary care clinic? Should they go to a pulmonologist? And then they schedule appointments right then with persons within our primary care clinic because the emergency department is very expensive. Though the hospital isn't requesting operating funds for the coming year, the city is still handing over $46 million for capital improvements, building renovations, technology, and the creation of two new outpatient health centers. Wes Rivers with the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute says he'd like to see a comprehensive plan before any more money is spent on bolstering UMC. Do we need more clinics, more doctors, or just a better system to help people access what's already there? Rivers says it's not clear. We spend a lot of money on health care, so we need to make sure that our capital dollars are spent well. I think there is the efficiency argument, you know, if we keep putting money into a leaky bucket, it's just... It's unsustainable, both for us and for the consumers, because the consumers will go to a hospital one day that could be bankrupt, and then they don't have a provider. And the sores here are in total focus, so this arm comes down. On a tour of the radiology department, chairman Dr. Raymond Tu enthusiastically shows off an array of imaging machines. We stop in a tiny, cold room where UMC has a low-dose mammography machine, which provides the most sensitive test available for breast cancer screenings. Two says other hospitals in the region don't have it. We have an emergency department. We have an intensive care unit. We have OBGYN. We have pediatrics, soon oncology. We have orthopedics. In order to use a healthcare system, you have to have tools in the toolbox. By providing a really strong radiology department, you will then attract doctors, which I think we've done, who want to practice here in Ward 7 or Ward 8. At least 35 new doctors have recently started seeing patients at UMC, all different specialties. We can all have our little cushy jobs elsewhere in the city, but we choose to be here in the rough part of town to provide excellent care for all of our patients. A few floors above the radiology department is the office of CEO David Small. There are newly laid wood floors, modern furniture, and another one of those change train signs. We're going somewhere, and we're going there as rapidly as we can get there, and it's everybody needs to be on that change train. Uh, I wish it was even faster, but we're, we're making progress. Little by little, he's fixing up the building. It's old. There are twice as many patient rooms as needed, and not enough space in other areas. The floors need to be waxed by a whole crew of people, and there are a lot of problems with the plumbing. Bad problems. On the second floor of the hospital, we have our cafeteria and all of our kitchens. They are directly over our operating rooms. If there's any kind of a water problem in our cafeteria, of which in a 50-year-old building we have them, uh, it presents a water infiltration problem in the ORs and forces us to close an OR while we're repairing that. This past spring, Mayor Gray announced his support for a plan to scrap the building and build a new $330 million hospital in its place. 
Come January, a new mayor will decide whether this makes sense. In the meantime, Small is cutting costs in other ways, with scrupulous billing and hiring staff internally, not through medical staffing companies. But the most important thing is getting the community to trust UMC and go there for care. Uh, We can talk about financial success. We can talk about cost management. But the biggest issues really are, is the hospital a high-quality organization that has the patient's needs first? Some people say no. Khadija Tribble lives two blocks from UMC. I live in a cul-de-sac of about 63 single-family homes. Uh, People who are taxpayers who work full-time. But my neighbors will say, I'm not going to the hospital. They got too much going on over there. Even though it's two blocks away? Even though it's two blocks away. Triple was hired by UMC to run a clinic for patients with diabetes, hypertension, HIV, and other chronic diseases. The clinic struggled due to lack of funding and, Triple says, a hospital with a culture of disrespecting patients. 90% of the folks who come to United Medical Center can't really afford to pay for services, right? But is that why you're in business? Then you pick the wrong hospital to work at. It's a safety net hospital. You come there because you really want to make a difference. Though UMC is certainly more of an asset towards 7 and 8 now than it was in years past, Tribble says the community deserves better. It has to stop being a political football where people want to go in and I said this and I did this and none of that should be important. It's the people. That's what matters. The hospital may be off life support, she says, but from where she stands, there's a long recovery still ahead. I'm Emily Berman. For this next story on today's Wild Cards show, we'll go from the future of one local hospital to someone who's been to a whole lot of local hospitals. I've been to GW Hospital, Virginia Hospital Center, Sibley, and Holy Cross Hospital. But Maryland native Emily Goodstein hasn't been a patient at these hospitals or a doctor or a nurse. No, she's been... Um, These are the photos from Baby May's arrival. A photographer. Every time I go through the photos. I cry just as much as I did at the birth itself. Emily's part of a growing movement of birth photographers. The International Association of Professional Birth Photographers reports having more than 860 members in 24 countries, all hired by expectant moms to capture their labor and delivery process on camera. So this is a picture we're looking at right now of Joanna and her baby and then her doula with the doula's hand sort of on Joanna's leg. And I have noticed that I actually get a picture quite similar to this at all births. It's funny the types of things that repeat themselves. Emily's start in professional photography came with another milestone life cycle event, weddings. Photographing weddings was fun and people were happy, but I was getting a little burnt out. And I came across a blog actually of a photographer who's based in Utah who had photographed a birth. And I thought, this is weird. People have professional photographers at their birth? That was four years ago. And I know that because the first baby that I photographed being born is now four. The birth happened at Virginia Hospital Center. It was a beautiful birth. And I walked out of the hospital. And I remember I was standing in the driveway of Virginia Hospital Center with all my gear. And I, was, I had amniotic fluid on my sweatpants. 
And I, I felt like I was so sort of on my purpose. Since then, Emily's had 20-some birth clients, including the mother whose photos we were looking at earlier, Annandale resident Joanna Eddy, who had her first home birth in the wee small hours of the morning last month. I could not believe it. I didn't think I could do it. But you did, and you were heroic and speedy. I thought I was going to be at the hospital, honestly. Emily Goodstein knows some parents may not feel comfortable bringing a professional photographer into their homes or delivery rooms. But as Joanna Eddy relaxes on her bed, nursing her newborn for the very first time, she tells me she wouldn't have had it any other way. It's just this beautiful, monumental time. And I think that to be able to look back and see that in photos will make a lot of difference in the processing and the healing that I think all women do, regardless of their birth experience. So I think that we'll really cherish them more so than I even think in this moment when I'm able to really think about what just happened. Emily Goodstein aims to stay as in this moment as possible so she can tell a more complete birth story. I usually will have spoken with the client in advance and I know exactly what they're looking for. And I don't guarantee ever a specific photograph, but I try to weave the photos together to tell the story of early in the labor and meeting the baby for the first time and the siblings meeting for the first time and all that good stuff. Still, though, she's clear what her priorities are. I always say to the care team, my priority is for you to be able to do your jobs. My second priority is to get photos. I want to be the second priority, right? My first priority clearly is healthy mom and healthy baby. Which is why she takes certain precautions. Whenever I meet a new member of a care team, I always say, hey there, I'm Emily. I'm the birth photographer. I was hired by the parents to be here. Please let me know if I'm in the way. Are you comfortable if you're in in the background of a few photos? Um, and you know, I won't take it personally if you have to elbow me out of the way. So I try to be extra respectful in that regard. Emily's captured many a birth on film, but she hasn't always been allowed to document the actual delivery. Every hospital has a different policy, and every doctor or midwife has a different policy. So there have been two deliveries that have resulted in C-section, and I've given my camera to the dad or to the doula. I did recently also have a twin client who labored in a labor and delivery room, but then pushed in an OR in case there were any complications. And so I wasn't actually allowed in the OR. And yet, she says, the inherently unexpected nature of things makes her love her job all the more. There is that thrill when, you know, a mom is pushing and her baby is born. And and even I had one client this fall who actually caught her baby. And I have a beautiful photo of her sort of lifting the baby out of her. So, yes, I would love to be there when the baby is coming out. But if that's not possible, we can still get really beautiful photos. And the truth is, that's actually what happened with Joanna Eddy in Annandale. As Emily does with all her clients, she put herself on call two weeks before and after Joanna's estimated delivery date. When I'm on call, I always have a bag ready, clear memory cards, charged batteries, high-protein snacks. The longest time I've been with a client is 36 hours. So she was totally ready to go. But remember what Joanna said about thinking she was going to be at the hospital? Well, this was her first home birth, something she'd really wanted after delivering her first child in a hospital. But once her water broke, she got kind of nervous, started having second thoughts, and one thing led to another. The birth team focused on calming her down, and the labor happened so quickly that the next thing you know, they were calling Emily to tell her, it's a girl. As Emily explained during our early morning drive to Annandale, this was only the second time she'd missed a delivery. The other one was born while I was parked in my car. So that one is in the gray area. 
right? Because oh, I yeah. was on... You were technically there. Exactly. Yeah. I was there. I just didn't have my camera on. This time she did have her camera on for quite a lot, like the umbilical cord burning ceremony Joanna's birth team did in lieu of a cord cutting. That's some serious cordage, girlfriend. And the moment three-year-old big sister Vivian met baby May for the very first time. Do you want to come see her? you got to be really careful. She's very... It is your baby. It's moments like these, Emily Goodstein says, that make the whole thing so magically worthwhile. Every time I'm at a birth, I see it as a celebration of a woman making a choice about her body or a series of choices about her body. So when and how many children to have and how to bring children into the world. And the fact that I get to be there to celebrate that, I actually feel like it's an honor when people allow me to be with them on the day that they meet their child. And what's more, she says, to help them remember so many little things about their big day. Time for a break, but when we get back... If you look at other countries... Our stats are so off the wall. Somebody said we have the uh, Old West mentality here. D.C. residents weigh in on the city's evolving gun rules. Stay with us here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're dealing out a deck of wild cards, shuffling away from our usual theme and bringing you a full house of stories about life in the national capital region. But enough of the bad poker metaphors. Our next story is about a long and bitter debate here in Washington. Guns. Martin Ostermule brings us the story. Last month, the D.C. Council passed a bill that most members probably never thought they'd have to vote on a measure allowing residents to carry concealed handguns. Here's Councilmember and mayoral candidate Muriel Bowser. I share the concerns of a lot of people that we really don't want to move forward with permitting more guns in the District of Columbia, but we all know we have to be compliant um, with what the courts say. In late July, a federal judge ruled that the city's longstanding ban on carrying handguns is unconstitutional. It was the second time in six years that a court came down on the city's gun laws. In the 2008 Heller decision, the Supreme Court tossed out D.C.'s 30-year-old ban on handgun ownership. Adams Morgan resident George Lyon was one of the plaintiffs in the Heller case, and later the lawsuit for the right to carry handguns outside. A year later in 2009, we filed the Palmer case in order to, to vindicate the right to carry a firearm outside the home. The purpose of Heller was to vindicate the right to keep a firearm in the home. So the two The twin rights of the Second Amendment are to keep and to bear. The recent ruling left D.C. little choice. So in September, the council passed the emergency bill that for the first time in decades will allow residents to apply for concealed carry permits. Uh, Then we have the bill before us. Um, This is the Emergency Amendment Act as amended. All those in favor of the bill say aye. 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 Opposed? The ayes have it unanimously. On Thursday, a council committee heard testimony on a bill that makes the changes permanent, although it won't be easy to carry a concealed firearm. 
Residents will have to be 21 to apply for a license, have a clean record, and prove that they haven't suffered a mental illness in the last five years. They'll also have to undergo 18 hours of training. If you do get a concealed carry license, you won't be able to carry your handgun into schools or government buildings. Bars, restaurants, stadiums, and public transportation will also be off-limits. You also won't be allowed near any protests and will have to stay a 1,000 feet away from any U.S. or foreign dignitaries. I think it's arguable whether they're loosening the gun laws or not. That's Archie, who has lived on Capitol Hill for 35 years and asked that he only be identified by his first name. He owns a shotgun and a number of pistols and says he uses them mostly for skeet shooting. I think they're making an effort to comply, uh, at least on the surface, with the judge's ruling. Uh, but I think they're doing it uh, grudgingly and uh, dragging their feet along the way and openly resisting, frankly, the uh, decision by the court. Archie says the part of the bill he objects to the most is the provision requiring residents to prove that they face a personal threat. Since he's never been the victim of a violent crime, he doubts he would get a concealed carry license if he applied for one. But I'm not at all comfortable with having any individual or panel of people determining whether I have sufficient reason to fear for my safety. I think I have a right to defend myself. But for many D.C. leaders and residents, allowing more guns on the street won't make the city any safer, and the council's bill is a step in the right direction. I have no problem with somebody having to justify why they're standing around on the same street that I'm standing on with a gun, Um, you know, why it's hidden in their pocket or their purse. I think there needs to be a good reason to have something like that. That's Lisa DeLady. Though she lives in Maryland, she has an intimate connection to gun violence in D.C. In November 1994, her brother Mike, an FBI agent, was one of three people killed by a gunman at D.C. police headquarters. She says she still remembers the day vividly. My parents knew that something had happened and that Mike was involved, but not what. And so we sat, like everybody else, and watched the news for a couple hours. And then um, we got a call that somebody from the FBI was coming to the house. And uh, so two agents came in, and uh, they just said, "We, we can't sugarcoat this. We just have to tell you that Mike is gone. Since then... Lisa has backed gun control measures in Maryland, one of which is a concealed carry law that looks a lot like D.C.'s. She also created a memorial to the victims of gun violence in the region, 176 t-shirts, each one with the name of a different person killed by a gun. The t-shirts have been on display at various local churches. I I don't buy the argument that the more guns we have out there, the safer we will be. Uh, Because if you look at other countries... You know, our stats are so off the wall. It's just, somebody said we have the uh, Old West mentality here. George Lyon, who sued in order to carry a gun, sees it differently. I think society is safer when the bad guys don't know which good guys have the guns and which, which good guys don't. Though the council has passed the concealed carry bill, the debate over how much D.C. can regulate handguns is likely to continue. Lyon and his fellow plaintiffs have asked the judge to stop the city from implementing the new law, while D.C. is asking the judge to reconsider his original ruling that overturned the city's ban on carrying guns. In the meantime, D.C. Police Chief Kathy Lanier says that residents will be able to start applying for concealed carry permits on October 23rd. I'm Martin Ostermule. We'll move now to another hot-button topic here in the district, education. 
Get this, Washington, D.C. has one of the most highly skilled labor markets in the country, and yet more than 60,000 adults who live here don't have a high school diploma. And if you add up all the district agencies and nonprofits that educate adult learners, they only serve about 8,000 people. That's just a fraction of the individuals who need help. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza spent last year working on a documentary about adult education. She recently attended a panel discussion that featured some of the folks she talked with for her documentary and brings us an update on how they're doing now. Kavitha, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, so in your documentary, some of the nonprofits that focus on educating adult students seemed to be hanging on by a thread. How are they doing these days? Well, one of the largest of these nonprofits, Rebecca Academy of Hope, recently decided to become a charter school. It's still doing the same work with the same students, but now it's known as Academy of Hope Adult Public Charter School. So same work, same students, different name. What exactly does it mean to go from a nonprofit to a charter? Well, honestly, a lot of it has to do with funding. For example, an adult who studies at a charter school receives almost $7,000 from the D.C. government, while an adult who studies at a community nonprofit can receive as little as $800. That's quite a difference. Yes, it is. Listen to Lacesta Johnson, who heads Academy of Hope, talk about her surprise when she received her first payment from the charter school board. Essentially, that first quarter payment was our entire last year's budget. You know, we were all sort of in shock and awe. (laughs) Now they can hire specialized teachers in addition to the volunteers they've always used, and they can provide additional support, including social services and job placement. So then I guess the obvious question is, why don't all nonprofits who educate adults just do what Academy of Hope is doing? Well, it's a really rigorous application process, and then it takes a year of preparation for the change. I spoke with Alison Kokoris, who's with Carlos Rosario International Public Charter School. It's been a charter school for 16 years. Before that, it was a nonprofit, and before that, a D.C. public school. She says along with autonomy and funding comes accountability. There's something called the Performance Management Framework. Basically, it requires certain performance benchmarks that then there will be report cards published on the public charter school board's website and there will be a grade given. And there are stretch goals that look at GED testing pass rate, look at your average daily attendance. If you're doing career training, look at the percentage of students that gain career certification, that look at whether your students gained employment if they were not employed. And if they were employed, if they retained employment. So, again, picture this 2,000 students at a school. If charter schools don't meet their goals, they can be given a warning status and their charters actually be revoked. That's happened at several charter schools. Is this switch to charter school something other nonprofits across the country are doing? Not really. In fact, researcher Terry Salinger with the American Institutes for Research says D.C. is a national leader in this area, with more than 10 adult charter schools. Minneapolis has one, and they're thinking about opening another. These charter schools have been formed by Goodwill Industries of Indianapolis. Goodwill Industries in Austin is working to create another adult charter school. Goodwill Industries in Miami, for example, could not create an adult charter school because Florida law prohibits adult charter schools. California, which has a very strong system of adult education, is flirting 
with adult charter schools is how it was explained to me. Kavitha, in your documentary last year, you talked about the GED test, which, of course, a lot of adult learners take. Um, You reported on upcoming changes, which would have testers do more writing, more science, and more critical thinking. Tell us, how has that worked out? With the changes, educators think it will become even more difficult for these students because already research shows the educational outcomes for adult learners in D.C. lag behind the national outcomes. Adult students here are more likely to leave a program early. They also have lower levels of educational gains and lower GED exam pass rates. Here's what Johnson and Kokoris predict. We haven't had anyone take the GED exam because we're just still figuring it out. Last year, we had our record number of 64 students that passed the exam. This year, I know that number is going to be significantly different. I really am not sure how many we will have. Maybe 10. Maybe. And that's sort of ambitious. Both Carlos Rosario and Academy of Hope are considering alternatives to the GED test, and there are now several offered. Such as what? Well, the National External Diploma Program, Test Assessing Secondary Completion, HiSET. I mean, they have wonky names. <laughs> and the bottom line is people are still figuring out how they're different from the GED test. Kavitha, in many states, it's the community college that takes the lead in adult education. So I'm wondering where, if at all, Um, The University of the District of Columbia Community College fits into this discussion. It's interesting you bring up UDC, Rebecca, because the community college is actually getting out of teaching basic literacy here. Kim Ford with UDC says they weren't doing a good job, so they're going to stop doing it. When's the last time you heard anyone actually admit to not doing something well? That's exactly what I said. Instead, Ford says UDC will continue to focus on digital literacy and on helping adult students train for jobs. She says nowadays getting a high school equivalency is not the end game. You have to have a credential after high school to get a gainful wage in this region. 70% of all jobs are going to require some sort of credential. I had someone tell me the other day, it's fine, I'll just flip burgers at McDonald's. Well, no, the burgers at McDonald's are going to flip themselves. And when the burger flipping machine breaks, you're going to need a technician to come in to fix that machine. And to be a technician, you are going to have to be certified or you're going to have to hold a degree. UDC focuses on five career pathways that are in demand in the D.C. area. So hospitality, IT, transportation, healthcare, and construction. And students also take outside licensure exams, so they have an industry-recognized certification. So overall, it sounds to me like we do really have some good stuff happening with adult education here in the district. Yes, we do. But it's not all positive. A recent study by the advocacy group DC Appleseed calls for $2.5 million of additional funding from the city to pay for professional development, testing out pilot programs, and doing assessments for students with learning disabilities. Kavitha Cardoza is WAMU's special correspondent. You can hear her documentary on adult education, Yesterday's Dropouts, on our website, metroconnection.org. Kavitha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.
And now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit Mount Airy, Maryland, and the Franklin Park neighborhood of McLean, Virginia. My name is Larry Hushauer. I'm 49 years old, and I live in the town of Mount Airy, Maryland. Mount Airy, Maryland is located uh, off of I-70, dividing the two counties of Carroll County and Frederick County. Mount Airy was founded in the 1830s. People started setting up a development on top of Pars Ridge, uh, and Mount Airy sits on Pars Ridge. The B&O Railroad was working its way out to the west, and as they did so, Mount Airy, they followed the Patapsco River, which actually begins in the town of Mount Airy. Mount Airy was actually named when a railroad worker was working on the railroad and noticed that his ears were always getting cold because the breeze over Pars Ridge was was so chilly and uh, gave it the name of Mount Airy. I think what makes Mount Airy unique is the fact that as a town we've been able to somewhat protect ourselves from the urban sprawl that uh, creeps up 270. After serving 20 years in the Navy, Mount Airy is a place that it's been real nice to settle down and call home. My name is Steve Del Bianco, 55 years old, and live here in Franklin Park. Franklin Park is uh, right at the border between Arlington and Fairfax County. It's the first community you pass into as you leave Arlington. During the Civil War, uh, the Union Army camped here, and there were some 2,000 soldiers spread amongst this neighborhood. I've got a uh, copy of a Washington Post advertisement from 1909, where uh, they list Franklin Park as, uh, as a place with healthful air and uh, drinkable water with a park-like atmosphere. And they're advertising small lots or cottages that were thought to be um, a summer getaway. But this part of McLean um, butts right up against Arlington. So we have the proximity to the city, and we also have another unique characteristic for McLean, and that's relatively small lots. Uh, and uh, those small lots are crowded up close to uh, narrow streets where the tree cover creates uh, almost a tunnel effect as you drive through the hilly neighborhoods. In the heat of a Washington summer, nothing seems to cool things down like the shade of a large tree, the sound of the wind rustling in the leaves, and uh, how beautiful it looks when the autumn colors come on. We heard from Steve Del Bianco in Franklin Park and Larry Hushauer in Mount Airy. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. In a minute, 75 years ago, Mr. Smith came to Washington. But not everyone was pleased. Roughly a third of the audience had left by the time the movie was over because they were dismayed. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you one of our freewheeling wild cards shows. We're going to turn next to the silver screen. The most timely the most vital, the most significant picture ever to come out of Hollywood. 75 years ago, before House of Cards, before The West Wing, we had Mr. Smith. A homespun boy and a hard-boiled, worldly-wise girl in a picture carved out of the everyday lives of everyday Americans. 
Yep, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is Frank Capra's classic movie about an idealistic young senator battling the corrupt powers that be. And as local film critic and historian Mike Canning will tell you, the film premiered on October 17, 1939, right here in the nation's capital. All the big wigs of Washington were invited. Forty-five senators showed up, and it was like a grand Hollywood premiere with uh, limos and lights and, and uh, music on the stage. Nothing had ever been done like it in Washington before. And that big opening night happened in the very place I sat down with Canning earlier this week, Constitution Hall in northwest D.C. Which seat did Frank Capra sit in, do we know? He sat in a box. I would love to sit where Capra sat. I think that would be kind of cool. Well, it turns out nobody's sure where Capra sat that night, but what is sure is he was near a distinguished gentleman from Montana who didn't exactly give the film two thumbs up. Burton Wheeler, a prominent senator of his day, and while they had chatted pleasantly during the day, after the film, Wheeler just turned on his heels and left and didn't say anything to Capra, just took off. Other senators went even farther than that, Canning says. The story that Capra tells, roughly a third of the audience had left by the time the movie was over. And yet, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington turned out to be a commercial hit and was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Frank Capra for Best Director and Jimmy Stewart for Best Actor. But Gone with the Wind swept the awards that year, and of the 11 awards that uh, it was nominated for, it only won one for Best Story. Still, Mr. Smith made quite the splash. And to understand why, you first have to consider what was happening in the country as Capra was making his film. What Mike Canning calls war worries. The political struggle in the United States was, what do we do about Europe and uh, Nazism? And in fact, right after the film wrapped and right before it opened here in the Constitution Hall... Germany and Russia took over Poland, and the debate about entering the war really became hot. Well, let's talk about opening night, October 17, 1939, right here where we are sitting. We had a lot of politicos in the audience that night. How did they respond to the film? Well, the, the reaction was very mixed, because the film doesn't treat senators kindly necessarily. In fact, they are prone to corruption and excesses and nefarious stuff. The principal element of the corruption is a a big boss back in the home state of Jefferson Smith, the lead played by Jimmy Stewart. The state is never mentioned. It's vaguely in the West. And his co-senator is Claude Rains, who's the politician who's been corrupted by the bosses to stay in office. He's been there for many years, Senator Payne. And uh, two-thirds of the way in the picture, Claude Rains tells Jimmy Stewart that he can't present the bill he wants to because something else takes precedent. And Payne tries to explain why, basically, you have to go along to get along. Now, listen, Jeff, please, and and try to understand. I know it's tough to run head on into facts, but, well, as I said, this is a man's world, Jeff, and you've got to check your ideals outside the door like you do your rubbers. Other reactions, even later, senators and other authorities were worried about the film being shown internationally because they thought it would give such a bad depiction of the United States and its politics. Another body in D.C. that's portrayed in a very particular and perhaps not the most um, positive way is the Washington Press Corps. Describe, if you will, that portrayal for us and tell us how the Press Corps felt about the depiction in the film. Well, it it got some bad reviews because of it. Their their scene is basically uh, ambulance chasing, crowd-attracted menials, not trained, not professional, and basically uh, incompetent. A quote that's relevant to both politicians and, and journalists, it was made by Harry Truman in a letter he wrote to his wife. Truman attended the premiere here in 39. He summarized it by saying, the movie makes asses out of all senators who are not crooks, but it also shows up the correspondence in their true drunken light. So he, it's a pox in both their houses. 
And yet, despite all of this, the film was very popular among regular moviegoers. It was a hit. Europe was looking forward to seeing it, but it kind of snuck in under the radar and, and, and of course, was banned. It was learned about by uh, Mussolini's Italy and, and Hitler's Germany, and they banned the film. It never was shown there until after the war. But it did good business in especially England and even in occupied France up until it was banned also in France. Why did they want to ban it? They didn't want to show anything about American democracy. Even though there was corruption, it showed that freedom triumphs, liberty triumphs. The single man can do something. Well, Mike Canning, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Mike Canning is a film critic for The Hill Rag and author of Hollywood on the Potomac, How the Movies View Washington, D.C. And for any of you Mr. Smith buffs out there, ever wonder how they got Jimmy Stewart to sound so rough and hoarse during his famous filibuster scene at the end? We have a clip of Mike giving away the big secret and video from the movie on our website, metroconnection.org. move now from the big screen to the stage. The music stage, that is. The genre of music we're talking about has been a major part of the DC scene for decades, and it's long been supported by a rather unusual partner, churches. Jared Walker brings us this look at the unlikely relationship between punks and pastors in the nation's capital. I'm at St. Stephen in the Incarnation Episcopal Church in Columbia Heights, where about 350 punks of all ages have filled the performance hall. Baltimore hardcore band Mindset is on stage, and the crowd is in a frenzy. Bodies are literally flying past me. In all the excitement, the band's lead singer receives a gash to his head and starts bleeding profusely. The group doesn't miss a beat. The day after the show, I sit down with Mark Anderson to talk about this intense and fascinating experience. In 1985, Anderson co-founded Positive Force DC, the all-volunteer social activist group that organized the Mindset Show. He says the group's goal is to turn the rhetoric of punk music into action. Punk talks about changing things, you know, changing ourselves, changing the world. And Positive Force, in principle, is a vehicle to help punks, and anybody who's interested in turning their talk into action. The group does this mainly by organizing benefit shows for various charities, movements, and nonprofits. Most of these concerts are held at church halls and other religious organizations. A surprising fact to the uninitiated that isn't lost on Anderson. It's an odd development because it's fair to say that positive force, as it started out, was like most of the punk community. I mean, it's deeply skeptical of organized religion. But in D.C., social activism has created what might be considered strange bedfellows in other parts of the country. If you look past the surface, there are parts of those religious communities who actually share a common spirit with punks. St. Stephen is one such community. Since the mid-80s, Positive Force has held dozens of shows at the church, and the site has become known as a legendary punk music venue. Anderson even has an office there. So why St. Stephen? Bill Mackay has been a member of the church since 1960. 
He says the answer lies in the church's commitment to radical social change. I came at the same time as a very adventurous and forward-looking priest came to be rector or pastor of the church. His name was Bill Went. His sense of what he needed to do with this congregation was get them ready for major change. At the time, Went presided over the first racially integrated Episcopal church in D.C., then a radical concept in and of itself. Father Went came in here with uh, a mission to open up the church to the neighborhood. He not only was going to welcome in black people, but he was going to go up and down the streets and say, you know, you're really welcome, come in. But Went didn't stop there. According to Bill Mackay, the priest led an ongoing effort to break down other barriers between the church and the community it served. In the 1970s, St. Stephen was one of the first Episcopal churches to ordain female priests. And church leaders even quietly blessed gay unions as early as 1976. Bill's son Ian Mackay says this progressive streak extended to the musical programs as well. As a kid going to church, I found most of the church stuff pretty boring, but the music stuff I loved. And they would have steel drums, for instance, would play, or they'd have a lot of folk musicians. They'd have, um, they had rock bands play. When Jesus Christ Superstar, the play, came down, I think it was at the National Theater or something, the band from the Jesus Christ Superstar played at St. Stephen's. It was incredible. Because of St. Stephen's social activism, openness to all kinds of music, and the fact that the church was an all-ages venue, Mark Anderson says it was an obvious candidate to host some of Positive Force's first benefit concerts. We did our first show here at uh, St. Stephen's in spring of 1986. It was a benefit for a uh, agricultural cooperative in Sandinista, Nicaragua. Not long after that first show, Ian Mackay played a Positive Force gig in the church's cafeteria with his new band, Fugazi. Although no longer a member of the church, the event was still profoundly important to him. That was really significant for me because, of course, it was a church in which I had been baptized and a church where I felt like I had been radicalized. Almost more importantly, part of my radical ideas directly came from being raised in a church where you're supposed to question authority. Fugazi went on to become one of the most important post-punk bands of all time, championing social activism and influencing generations of punks, many of whom attend Positive Force shows at St. Stephen Episcopal today. And according to Mark Anderson, the symbiotic relationship between the two organizations is as strong as ever. Now, it doesn't mean that when a punk rock show happens and, for example, like the one we had this weekend, and leaves a big hole in the wall, that someone doesn't have to fix the hole or that there isn't a a tear in the community that has to be mended because those things happen. I mean, that is what happens when you bring together communities that might share a common spirit in many ways, but have very different ways of expressing it. But what's beautiful is that the church is committed to working through that. And in that sense, the experiment that has been going on here at St. Stephen's since the mid-1980s is a beautiful thing and a very hopeful and inspiring thing. I'm Jared Walker. Want to see photos from a recent show at St. Stephen? We have them on our website, metroconnection.org. (laughs) 
before we say goodbye today, we're turning the microphone over to you and reading from recent emails we've received from listeners. Our recent show about gentrification in D.C., something we called the G-word, sparked a ton of comments, including one from Darren, who responded to our story about why so many African Americans have left Georgetown. He writes, Since the first cities came into being nearly 10,000 years ago, they've always been home to constant change. Why should 21st century D.C. be any different? And why in the world would retired folks of any race want to hang on in a high-cost, high-congestion, higher-crime jurisdiction like ours? My story about the ups and downs of life in D.C.'s Marshall Heights neighborhood prompted this note from Lee House. I am a native Washingtonian, grew up in the Marshall Heights community in Southeast, and continue to have relatives and close family friends who live in the community. I feel very proud of its growth and development over the years. To me, it is quite interesting that a house that a family bought for $7,000 in 1965 stands beside another house that a family bought in 2013 for close to $200,000. To me, that speaks volumes about the impact of growth and appreciation and housing values and conditions in urban areas. If you have a comment or question about anything you hear on Metro Connection, let us know. You can find us on Twitter at WAMU Metro is our handle, or send an email. Our address is metro at WAMU.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Gavitha Cardoza, Martin Ostermule, and Jared Walker. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. This week's door-to-door producer is John Hines. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. If you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click This Week on Metro Connection or subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can tune in next week when we'll devote an hour to devotion. We'll meet a pastor who's staying true to her faith and her sexuality, and we'll hear about the pioneers who, 65 years ago, forged ahead to found one of the nation's first not-for-profit theaters. One of their ideas was to have a company on a boat going up and down the Potomac, and they actually had the boat, but apparently they couldn't get a permit for landing. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.